0: I seriously thought we were the next Nirvana and I thought the world was going to perceive us that way like a super important super powerful heartbreaking heavy rock band and a serious artist that's how I saw us Oh yeah
1: right. Weezer's self-titled debut aka the blue album is one of the most enduring artifacts of the alt-rock age. It's won teenage hearts in generation after generation.
0: Somebody's cold me chills. Released in
1: 1994, it's the geeky, equally angsty little brother of Pearl Jam's 10 and Nirvana's Nevermind, somehow both more sincere and more ironic than its predecessors, and in some ways bolder in its disregard for the old rules of rock, To some suspicious music fans at the time, it seemed like Weezer emerged out of nowhere, popping up fully formed with a major label debut. One of the guys from the band Urge Overkill once asked Weezer guitarist Brian Bell if they had been put together like the Monkees. In a way, Weezer did come out of nowhere. They exist only because their brilliant oddball of a frontman, Rivers Cuomo, somehow managed to go from frustrated metal shredder to quirky alt-rock mastermind in the space of just a couple years, and then met just the right collaborators along the way. But for Cuomo, none of it was quite what he expected, and Weezer almost ended before it really got started.
0: I just wanted to get away. I was so, so unhappy with life on the road and, and life in the band. and I wanted to find a girl and get married and go to college and learn and become a composer.
1: In the end, though, Weezer carried on. They inspired countless emo bands, made two classic albums in a row, and became one of their era's most lasting acts. And it all started with the Blue Album.
2: One, two, three, four, five. Baby.
1: I'm Brittany Spanos, senior writer for Rolling Stone and your host for Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Albums, an Amazon original podcast, where we dig into 10 albums off our new list. In this episode, Weezer's Blue Album.
3: Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Albums ad free on Amazon Music. Download
0: the app today. If I asked you how many subscriptions you have, would you be able to list all of them and how much you're paying? If you would have asked me this question before I started using Rocket Money, I would have said yes. But let me tell you, I would have been so wrong. I can't believe how many I had and all the money I was wasting. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com/wondery. That's rocketmoney.com/wondery. rocketmoney.com/wondery.
1: Rolling Stone senior writer Brian Hyatt has interviewed Weezer numerous times in the past, including in 2019 when he wrote an in-depth feature on the band's origin for the 25th anniversary of the Blue Album. Here he is with the full story.
3: To explain how Weezer ended up making their 1994 debut, and how Weezer came to exist at all, we need to start with a high school metal band from suburban Connecticut. They went by the unfortunate name of Avant-Garde. They moved to Los Angeles in 1989, ready to make it big in a hair metal scene they had no idea was about to die. Five guys, all crammed into the same filthy studio apartment, sleeping on the floor. Their lead guitarist was Rivers Cuomo, and he had what it took—squealy virtuoso licks, majestically poofed up '80s hair. He had zero ambitions of being the frontman.
0: I mean, I I could have I could have seen myself as like the uh, uh, somebody in the NBA as easily as being a lead singer in a metal band. It's just like. <laughs> unthinkable.
3: (laughs) Circa 1990, Avant Garde changed their name to Zoom. Here's their song, Street Life. That's Rivers' friend, Kevin Rydell, on the vocals. Zoom soon started to fizzle out. At the same time, Rivers got some bad news from the Musicians Institute, the trade school for guitar shredders he was supposed to be attending. Here's what it was like at the Musician's Institute, from a 1986
0: promo. Here, GIT's new rock sensation, Paul Gilbert, chose one of his licks to student Janie Thorson.
3: The pattern that
2: I use within that scale, first goes up four scale notes, starting on the root, and back down to the root. So you go one, two, three, four, and back down. Try that.
3: Mm-hmm. And then up six. Rivers had always been a gifted and disciplined student, but he was overwhelmed by the excitement of Hollywood, and he just couldn't focus on learning more guitar skills. Here's how
0: Rivers describes it. It seemed kind of, I guess, superfluous, because now I'm, like, in Hollywood, and here's all the clubs, and here are the record companies, and let's just make a stack of a 1,000 flyers and go out there and do this. And what is the point of, like, going to a class to, to study some jazz licks, it just—it's irrelevant now. Just finding myself in Hollywood, I was so excited and just going around on my skateboard and looking around at the the buildings and seeing seeing a sign it's says this record company or this publishing company, not really knowing what it was, but it's just like I am like in the center of the universe here. This is the greatest place in the world, and um, I couldn't bring myself to get into like diligent student mode. I didn't realize I was going to be basically expelled, and when they brought me into the office to tell me that I was crushed and I begged them to let me finish somehow and get, get a credit. And that was only because I felt so bad taking my parents' money and not even getting a diploma from a guitar school.
3: Rivers, by the way, may be the only person on earth to flunk out of Musicians Institute and later end up graduating from Harvard but the impending death of his band and a sort of academic failure
0: led to what he later described as his quote, system of values crumbling. Quite possibly it was like thinking of myself as a lead guitar player, thinking that faster harmonic minor scales equals better, thinking that I could move out to LA with Avant-Garde and we were just gonna be huge rock stars. And then seeing like one band member after another leave abandon me and not being able to hold it together or put it back together, heartbreak with two girlfriends back-to-back, back.
3: that's probably what I meant. Things started to look up once Rivers got a job at Tower Records, where his taste began to stray way beyond metal.
0: I was such a devout metalhead, but somehow it was okay to, for me to listen to pop radio and, and like Tiffany and... Um, Madonna at the same time. I was just aware of, it was, I, maybe there was a sense of irony, but I just, I definitely enjoyed the music. But I think my education and my transformation can be credited to one source definitely more than anything else, and that would be Tower Records, my job there. Because that was eight hours a day of listening to like really good music from all different genres and time periods and being schooled by the senior people there. At first I was like, just could not get into any of it. It all sounded like garbage to me. Velvet Underground or Pet Sounds was re- reissued around that time. 13th floor elevators, Pixies, uh, Sonic Youth. It all sounded like noise. Like how could it, like none of this is melodic or catchy. <laughs> and But over the course of the year and a half that I worked there, I came to love it all. One
3: band changed everything for him.
0: I remember the first time I heard Nirvana too. It must have been a year before that. And when I was at Tower, this very knowledgeable guy there, Harold, said, you should check out this band Nirvana. I think I think you'd like this. And he put on Sliver. And I remember just like walking around in circles around. They had this island in the center where it's like an info desk um, at Tower Sunset. Mm-hmm. And I just just listening to it, like walking around, putting away CDs, walking around, it's like, oh my God, this is this is so beautiful to me, and it's I identify with it so much. And that was really the song, in a way. That's my teen spirit. I think for a lot of people, Teen Spirit is the song that changed the course of their musical life. And for me, it was Sliver and hearing hearing him sing about mom and dad and. Grandpa Joe and like these like personal family issues and in a really heartbreaking kind of innocent childlike way over these straightforward chords in a major key, um, but then the distortion kicks in and he starts screaming. Shit, <laughs> that's what I want to do.
3: Nirvana even influenced his look. Original Weezer guitarist Jason Cropper told me the "In Bloom" video, where Kurt Cobain wears thick glasses helped Cuomo feel comfortable in his own eyewear. At Tower Records, Cuomo met a punk rock dude named Pat Finn who connected him with a drummer. Patrick Wilson was an endearing, goofy fan of They Might Be Giants and Van Halen, and he had serious drum skills. Cuomo moved in with Wilson and his friend Matt Sharp, an arty, brainy dude with gothy, anglophile tastes and a weird dyed rat tail. Sharp had his own musical projects, but at that point he was just a roommate with a remarkably lucrative day job, telemarketing upscale dog shampoo. Cuomo and Wilson started a band called Fuzz, enlisting a young woman named Scotty Chapman on bass. Cuomo's first songwriting efforts included The Answer Man, which sounds like a grungier Jane's addiction. Cuomo is obviously trying to sing like Perry Farrell. It's solid, though. You could imagine this band getting signed. After one or two Fuzz shows, Chapman quit, eventually going on to star on the show Mythbusters. Patrick Wilson told me she quit because she, quote, realized we were nerds. After Fuzz came 60 Wrong Sausages, with Cuomo, Wilson, and Finn on bass, along with a second guitarist, Jason Cropper. Cropper was a California native, a chill, cheerful guy. Cuomo wasn't the focus of 60 Wrong Sausages. It was more of a collective, and it didn't last long. After so many failed bands, Cuomo decided he would write 50 songs in a row before allowing himself to form another one, or even play live again. He moved to Santa Monica, started attending college there, and recorded demo after demo on an 8-track cassette recorder. He only got to 30 or so songs, not 50, but among them were Undone the Sweater Song and other future Weezer tracks. Cropper says that around this time, Cuomo also made an entire rap album that he never released.
4: There was a record that he had made called The Vegetarists, and Rivers has been a lifelong vegetarian for the most part, and, you know, that comes from, like, his Hindu roots and Buddhism and stuff like that and the way he was raised, and so he made this record called The Vegetarists, and it was this awesome, like, in the style of public enemy meets EPMD and Run DMC, like hard-hitting rap from the '80s, you know, like America KKK's Most Wanted style raps, (laughs) like
3: badass stuff about being a vegetarian. Uh huh. The only evidence of this period is a striking demo of Cuomo covering Ice Cube's "The Bomb," like a one-man rage against the machine. Matt Sharp had moved to the Bay Area and was going on these aimless, weeks-long Amtrak rides. On one of those trips, he listened to a tape of Cuomo's new songs that Wilson slipped him. When he heard Sweater Song and the breakup lament the world has turned and left me here, everything changed. Cuomo was profoundly affected by Sharp's enthusiasm.
0: I think Matt called me and said, you're a genius and this is gonna happen. I'm gonna move down there I'm gonna be your bass player, we're gonna be a band, and this is gonna happen. Feeling Matt's reaction to the tape was like the greatest boost of confidence I'd ever felt in my life. It confirmed all my greatest hopes for myself. He was just like this big brother to me, and it's knowing that, that he felt so strongly about the songs was, was like all the confidence I needed.
3: Sharp became the band's de facto manager. And even though he would go on to become a hit songwriter himself in his band The Rentals, Sharp wasn't really a co-writer in Weezer. He still played a big role in shaping their sound, in part just by spending hours talking with Cuomo. For a while, the band had some leftover fuzz songs in their set list, but Sharp wasn't feeling them. That helped kill off those songs, as Patrick Wilson recalled.
5: There was a, uh, a distinct shift away from shreddiness or like riffiness and i think that's what matt was where his head was at at the time was yeah like let's not be (laughs) grunge. let's be more like the beat boys but loud
3: cuomo got an offer for a generous scholarship at uc berkeley with a stipend an apartment even a parking space he gave sharp a year to get them a record deal otherwise he would take berkeley's offer Cuomo persuaded a club, Rajis, to let them play. They ended up on a bill with Keanu Reeves' then-band, Dogstar, as a late-night closer. Weezer played their first show on March 19, 1992, a month after they'd formed on Valentine's Day. Cuomo came up with the band name Weezer during his phone call with the booker that day. Weezer was a nickname given to him by his biological father. His dad wasn't in his life much after his parents divorced when he was four years old or so and Cuomo had strong, unresolved feelings about it all.
0: I remember getting letters from my dad, and it was always it B2Weezer, and there, there wasn't a, he didn't use an H. Yeah, it was definitely a very emotional name for me, and uh, I don't think for anyone else, but for, for the other guys in the band, it's just a weird word. Like, why are we called that? But it even ties back to what I was saying about slivers, just this feeling of being this, this helpless little kid that's abandoned or neglected. It was definitely the right name from my perspective.
3: That night, Weezer played a club that had been packed with fans there to see Reeves, a heartthrob, then and now.
4: Every girl, every pretty girl in Hollywood is there. And we're looking at each other like, oh, my God, this is so red Like, oh, wow, he's a movie star and blah, blah, blah. And he played for a long time. So they played and played and played and played. And finally, they're done. And everyone left. All the pretty girls went away. And it was our turn to play. And we just left it all on stage as best we could.
3: Weezer spent a good chunk of 1992 playing shows to mostly empty clubs, with the same group of five or so friends always cheering them on. Sharp started asking them not to come on the grounds that they were bumming him out. The increasingly hive-minded Sharp and Cuomo were sharing an apartment, and Wilson and Cropper were not invited to join them. Wilson was, by his own description, a slob and annoying. He ended up living in a garage with no running water. Weezer recorded a demo that included a version of the confessional, Say It Ain't So, with lyrics about Cuomo's stepdad. That made its John Vershanti influence a lot more obvious than the one they'd later lay down in the studio.
0: Somebody's, honey, my Somebody's
3: the demo made it to Todd Sullivan, an AR guy at Geffen, which became the one major label to show interest in Weezer. Sullivan had some trouble getting them at first comparing their demo to the Ramones and the Descendants as well as the Pixies, and coming away from their live show wondering if they were British. Weezer signed to Geffen for a modest deal, and Sharp and Cuomo had every intention of producing an album themselves. Sullivan convinced them otherwise. Cuomo had been listening to the Cars Greatest Hits and became excited at the idea that the band's leader, Rick Okasik, would produce the album. Okasik liked what he heard. Okasik persuaded the band to travel to his home base in Manhattan and record at Electric Lady Studios. Sharp and Cuomo had come up with all sorts of rules, banning the use of reverb and assisting on only downstrokes on guitar. Their engineer, Chris Shaw, explains there was one overriding concept.
4: The idea was that the guitars and the bass were one huge ten-string instrument. You know, mm. uh, the way all the bass and the voice it was just they want everything to sound like one big, you know, monster guitar. You know, there's very few songs in the record that have actually have a bass line that drifts away from what the guitars are doing. And I think the only benchmark we had—it was sort of like the loudest guitar record at the time was probably Creep by Radiohead. You know, Uh like when the guitars and the chorus come in, they they just obliterate everything. And so when we were doing the mixes, we were checking to make sure our guitars were just as loud, if not louder than Creep.
3: Cuomo had written a song called Buddy Holly using a friend's core keyboard to add 80s-inspired synth parts. In his mind, it was intended for the band's second album, which would be more keyboard-oriented and new wave influenced. Weezer, of course, never made such an album, but Sharp and Cuomo were also concerned that Buddy Holly could become the kind of 90s hit that could kill a band. Here's drummer Patrick Wilson again.
5: It was the wrong narrative. I think he felt like. In fact, in Buddy Holly, he didn't even want on the record because it had a synth line in it. And he, right. in his mind, he had a map of, okay, the next record, we're going to do like an 80s thing and blah, blah, blah. So, really, the story of Weezer is like plans gone wrong.
3: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's life, though.
5: And but I love it yeah. because. Rick was like, no, this song's got to be on the record. It happens to Rivers a lot, actually. Like, he'll have a certain mindset about something, and somebody with authority will come in and go, that's actually not the best way to go. And But Rivers, to his credit, will listen, even though yeah. it doesn't feel right, right. He knows the person's right. Buddy Holly, yeah. I believe, is written about this lovely Korean lady, funny to think of her as a lady, I don't think she was that much older than us, but she seemed like an old lady. And I think, I don't recall anyone ever giving her a hard time, but it (laughs) might've looked like that to Rivers. Cause we would fucking go over to her house, and now I remember, she had a piano. So Rivers was all about vocal rehearsal. Cause he's like, I want this to sound good. And we would go over there, sing incredibly poorly. All of us. Yeah. But it was her piano. So maybe one day we said something
0: offhanded and he he wrote about it. I don't know. A friend of mine at the SMC lent me a, a keyboard and I wrote a couple of songs that featured that synth sound very heavily. And yeah, I got this idea like, OK, this first record is going to be... You know, the color is going to be the acoustic guitar and the harmonica. And then the next record is going to be all synth and new wave. And that's why the first songs on Pinkerton have synth. But then after that, none of the songs on Pinkerton do mm. because I'd given up on the synth idea. <laughs> I was open enough to the idea of recording Buddy Holly at the time. and Oh, you know, we had Michael and Carly was going to be the 10th song. And it just... As we were recording, it was clear, clear that Buddy Holly was a much, much cooler track. And so Michael and Carly was relegated to a B-side, which I don't think it came out until the deluxe edition. Back in High, I
3: had two best Producer Rick Okasik lobbied hard for Weezer to record Buddy Holly, even making an actual sign he held up at the band to request it during pre-production. It certainly was an obvious hit. During mixing, Shaw remembers stepping out of the control room and catching a studio receptionist humming it to herself. Just before they finished recording, Weezer fired Cropper, and Cuomo replaced all of his guitar parts. Cropper is still convinced he was canned mostly because of his relationship with his then-girlfriend, now his former wife, who was unpopular with the bandmates. She was pregnant with the first child, and defying Cuomo's no-girlfriends-while-we're-recording role, she flew to New York to visit Cropper. He also thinks Sharp had it out for him. Maybe was jealous that he'd written the guitar intro to My Name is Jonas. Sharp gently says none of that is true. Instead, Sharp says a series of tiny infractions— led him to believe that the band's overall chemistry was at risk. Cuomo felt if they were going to make a change, it had to be before they finished the first album and shot the album cover. For Cropper, it was a tough road at times, though he eventually reconciled with Cuomo and told him he was grateful for all the years he got to spend with his family, instead of on the road. People in the LA music scene could be shockingly callous. One booker casually told Cropper, gosh, I'm surprised you haven't killed yourself. Popper whose kids have grown up performed with Cuomo in 2018.
4: I'm not just a ex-member of the band, I'm a huge fan. I go I love to go see them play and if, you know, any t- any chance that, that any of them would would, you know, welcome me on stage or in the studio, I would be there in a heartbeat.
3: Anyway, Weezer needed a replacement fast and settled on a great-looking guy they'd seen around LA. Sharp was pretty sure Brian Bell could play but he wasn't entirely positive. Bell flew to New York just in time to squeeze in some background vocals on Weezer's debut. When he arrived at their hotel, he knocked on Cuomo's door and discovered that the front man had grown a robust cop mustache. Cuomo told him, first thing is, you have to grow a mustache because we're all gonna have mustaches on the front cover. Are you sure? Bell asked him. Fortunately, Cuomo wasn't sure. Bell got word that he would be sharing a room with Patrick Wilson.
5: So I go to Pat's room, and Pat goes, he's like, welcome to Weezer, and he just pulls his pants down and moons me. I'm like, what the
3: hell have I stepped into? Right, right, what, what kind of nerds are these? Yeah yeah. yeah, yeah. In classic 90s fashion, Cuomo almost immediately realized he hated being a rock star. Weezer were hesitant to do music videos, but got along with a young director, Spike Jones. The only guy to pitch a sweater song video without any images of a sweater. When they teamed up with him again for a Buddy Holly video, he came up with a Happy Days theme. Buddy Holly took over MTV and all-rock radio. The Blue album started selling big. Weezer were stars. They're not quite the kind they wanted to be.
0: Put quite simply, when we were making our music and making our record, I seriously thought we were the next Nirvana. And I thought the world was gonna perceive us that way. Like a super important, super powerful, heartbreaking, heavy rock band and a serious artist. That's how I saw us.
3: The first clue that the world would see it slightly differently came in a lunch with their a and guy, who praised the humor of some of Cuomo's lyrics, even using the words, comical band.
0: I just, it was just like a gut punch. And that's when I started to realize like, The world wasn't going to see Weezer like I did. Mm. And the world wasn't going to see the Blue album like I did.
3: Sweater song, in particular, was misunderstood.
0: Yeah, it was like a song about my darkest thoughts. And it became clear, like, everyone else who hears this song is going to think it's hilarious. Well, that was one of the first songs I wrote for that album. And I was definitely trying to copy the Pixies. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. It it wasn't any kind of like marketing angle, like, oh, I should do a college rock type of song. It was more just that I love the Pixies, and I got to figure out how to be exactly like them.
3: Cuomo didn't enjoy touring, in part because of an entirely self-imposed mandate to play the same setlist in the same order nearly every night. He wrote a lovely ballad called Longtime Sunshine that strongly suggested he wanted to quit rock, enroll in college on the East Coast, and get married. He became obsessed with classical music, asking for a piano in every hotel room, and seeking out opera performances on the band's European tour. He also began sending out applications to elite universities. Here's Brian Bell. He, he definitely told me and Matt once, like, um, I think I want to go to school back to school or um, study classical music and be a classical musician,
5: I'm like, oh, you do? Do you? Okay. I'm like, like, I did it again, like where I'm like, okay,
1: cool.
0: I just wanted to get away. I was so, so unhappy with life on the road and, and life in the band and wanted to, yeah, everything you hear in that song, I wanted to find a girl and get married and go to college and learn and become a composer.
3: Cuomo picked Harvard after he realized he didn't have enough formal musical training for Juilliard, his first choice. No one in the band will admit to worrying that it was all over when Cuomo matriculated, but it was definitely unnerving.
5: He was disillusioned, and you know, we were like, What the fuck? Let's can we please keep doing this?
3: In the end, Cuomo's bandmates were correct. Weezer's weird story was just beginning, school or not. In the fall of 1995, Cuomo enrolled at Harvard, strolling through the leafy campus, just as he had dreamed. No one bugged him. It was as if Weezer never happened. There were papers to write, piles of reading to do. But here's the thought that soon came to his mind.
0: It wasn't long, though, like maybe a couple weeks before I was like, I kind of want to go back to being in the band.
1: Blue album landed at number 294 on Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Albums list. I'm Brittany Spanos. This has been Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Albums, an Amazon Original podcast. Executive producers are Christian Horde, Hank Schemer, Gus Winner, and myself. This episode was produced by Brian Hyatt. Mixing by Marquis Neal. Our senior producer is Michelle Lands. Additional production help by Mary Dew. Bridget Shelsey is our production manager. Peter Miller is our music supervisor. Fact-checking by Jonathan Bernstein. Supervising executives for Amazon Music are Nathan Brackett, Morgan Jones, Steph Walknean, and Lauren D. And for Rolling Stone, Jason Fine. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Albums every Tuesday and hear it first on Amazon Music.